and welcome back to the Cine Skinny. It's the film podcast from the team behind the Skinny magazine, uh, Peter Simpson and Jimmy Dunn, as ever. Hi, Jimmy. Hi, Peter. And uh, Anna Heat is away on holiday, so literally off the bench, as in the little bit that we make him sit in when we're uh, when we're recording the podcast to replace Anna Heat this week. It's Lewis Robertson. Hi, Lewis. Hi. It's nice to be in the chair. It's nice to be closer to the closer to the magic. Instead of being in the room where it all happens, he's at the ta- the small table where it all happens. <laughs> so yeah, we've got a fair bit to get through today. We're going to talk about Tom Cruise's return to being in the sky. We're going to talk about Tom Cruise running along on the ground in a very kind of like tight mechanical way. Uh, we're also going to talk about Psycho because it's getting a 4K re-release for its 60th anniversary and some other little bits as well. But before we get started, we need to say thanks to everyone who came out to the first running of the Cine Skinny Film Club. Uh, We played uh, Good Time, the Safdie Brothers film. We also played a James Price short film retrospective. It was, Jamie, an experience. Yeah, do we thank people and also apologise? We didn't really know it was going to be a director's commentary edition, but that was a little bonus. Yeah, it was. uh, I feel like one person said to me, it was unlike any Q&A that they had ever been to and then did not qualify whether that was positive or negative. But we do hope that everyone had a good time and we've certainly like learned some stuff for the future and we're like keen to do them again. So let us know what you thought if you were okay, if you came down. Uh, get us on cineskinny at theskinny.co.uk. Uh, next one, hopefully fairly soon, uh, just follow us on social media for the info on that. Hopefully going to do one in Glasgow at some point as well and also thanks to james for being so entertaining and bringing all the mad cap energy that we could have expected and a lot lot more yeah we uh we put we said we would put on james's films and we put them on and then some so yeah it was a fun night um but yeah thanks to everyone who came down it was a good fun time uh, but speaking of good fun times, we've been watching some films because that's the best way to have a good fun time. Uh, Lewis, what have you been watching this week? Uh, over the weekend, a friend and I, who share a love for really schlocky horror B-movies, watched Leprechaun from 1993, uh, starring Warwick Davis and Jennifer Aniston. It's Jennifer Aniston's first film role. And it's a, it's a lot of fun. It is on the sort of spectrum of like scary to funny, just completely funny. Apparently, Warwick Davis read the script and suggested that it be directed as a comedy, which I really cannot imagine what it must have been like before because he's a leprechaun. He drives around in a little car and like polishes people's shoes. And it's sort of a slasher, but very few people die. Uh, and the whole principle of in a horror movie where you want to keep your monster or your villain in the shadows so that the suspense builds and the viewers, their imagination fills the gap. Uh, and that's the scariest thing of all. That's thrown out the window. We see the leprechaun opening shot. They've put a lot of money into this costume, this makeup, so uh, they want you to see it. It looks exactly like the Lucky Charms cereal box, so they're very proud of it. But um, yeah, cannot imagine what it would have been like if it had not been Warwick Davis's funny little suggestion. (laughs) It sounds like, yeah, when they're like, oh yeah, we want to have this be straight up horror. It's like, not sure that's a good idea. Yeah. But you know what? Oh no, we'll, we'll not even try it. Let's. Uh... Maybe they were trying to make it really horrible and horrific, and there is like you know violence, and he is like a sort of scheming little monster. But also, I think it just is fundamentally a very funny thing. It's impossible to make look scary. I haven't seen that one, but I have seen Trolls Two, which mm. I feel is like in some 
way connected to that world. I can't quite remember, but they are like in the same sort of universe of like really terrible, B-movie. mischievous little bastards but, that yeah, do I mean, terrible, horrific things. I mean, the funny thing is, Jennifer Aniston is actually a good actor. Like, so like it's it's funny. Usually, what what makes these things so pleasurable is the actors are awful, but the fact they have somebody who actually went on to be successful is, is she is a, she does give a good performance. She's the only female character in the entire film, which again is kind of one of the issues with these old schlocky films but she really does sort of steal the show she has great screen presence i love how loose it's called these old films basically <laughs> like this is like from 1993 this is your jamie's child i was born this is jamie's childhood just being fully dragged over the coals yeah the 1990s were an absolute time speaking of jamie's childhood being demolished brick by brick what have you been watching jamie well i've been watching ghostbusters afterlife um, which I completely missed when it was at the cinemas, and I'm pretty glad it did because it's not very good. Uh, this is uh, Jason Reitman making the long delayed sequel to his dad, Ivan Reitman's first two Ghostbuster movies. And this is just a really woeful, really unimaginative attempt to kind of re- uh, reimagine the franchise, really. Like Top Gun, what we're going to talk about, this is one of these kind of legacy sequels that basically recreate the first film while adding in a new, younger cast, um, but also bringing back all the old ones. Like crowbarring them into the story and like repeating a lot of the images and plot points of the original film, but it's just so cloyingly sentimental and respectful to the original film that it's pretty hard to watch, to be honest. So it's just f- shameless fan service at its worst. You know, there's no invention, there's no attempt to improve in the first film, which I like, but it's not exactly a masterpiece. It's like a bit scrappy. I could see how they could try and improve, but they recreate even the style of the animation, the very kind of like cheap looking, you know, kind of like animatronics of the first one. But the worst thing is, is that what made me so uncomfortable while watching it is they've got quite a ghoulish way of resurrecting Har Ramis. So he, Har Ramis, if you don't remember, wrote and starred in the film. He's he's Egon Spengler. But Ramis died about five years ago. Um, so because I think the older cast were less reluctant to come back, you know, Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd basically make a blinking, you'll miss it, appearance. They get around that by bringing back uh, Harold Ramis by reanimating this kind of ghost and it's absolutely horrible um, so yeah the whole film kind of uh, revolves around his kind of grandchildren basically it's them coming back to a farm that you know he's just died and they've inherited this kind of dirt farm in the middle of nowhere um, but yeah like just the idea of bringing back an actor as a ghost I think is really disturbing they, they started doing it in you remember the Star Wars film they brought they brought back a few people like Carrie Fisher um, which which was I could understand because you know like uh, you know they had to get that film made but they didn't have to do this this was just purely to make money and it's just it just there's something really crass about it um, so yeah you know obviously Reitman loves the films and you know he's trying to pay homage to his dad and pay homage to Har Ramis but to me it just come off as really cheap really exploitative and uh, yeah I'm, you know I'm sure like Ramis's family and stuff agreed to it but like yeah just left a bad taste in my Trying to pay homage to his dad by hauling his cold, dead body out of the ground. God, yeah. Well, that's the thing as well. In those Star Wars films, right, they're set at the time those characters were young, so it does kind of make sense they might have to CG in this character or CG them younger. Whereas this isn't flashing back to the past, is it? It's bringing him back as a ghost. Yeah. It is explicitly laying down this character and the actor are dead. Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah. Not a fan. And it's just a bad movie as well. It's like kind of slow and like dumb and I don't know. It, the thing about the Ghostbusters is it's kind of edgy. You know, these were like Saturday Night Live comics who actually were really funny and it's like full of like 
dirty humour and stuff that's quite sexy as well. Like, you know, you've got like a, yeah, it's like, it's really kind of like a kind of adult film that kids kind of like. Whereas this is a total kids film um, and it's very cloying and sentimental. Yeah, it kind of misses the whole point of the first film, really. And it's the, the, the whole point of the first film is it's fun because it's kind of like loose and it's like a hangout movie and we like these characters a lot. And I think it kind of thinks what, what the reason we watch this film is because it's got Marshmallow Man and Slimer. You know, that's not why you like those films. So I don't know. I just missed the whole point, I think, of Ghostbusters. It, uh, it sounds bad and I don't think I'll watch it. What were um, you watching, Peter? So I was watching, speaking of um, very, very strange, kind of slightly horrific things, and speaking of weird ghostly things, a film called The Forbidden Room, which is by Guy Madden. The film is ostensibly set on a kind of failing submarine as the crew slowly run out of oxygen and they start imagining and like telling each other all these stories from other time periods. It's like a combination of German Expressionism, uh, silent cinema, the mighty Bush folk horror... Uh, there's endless like back projections and weird kind of like camera artifacts. Uh, everybody in it plays about four or five different characters, and it's all kind of like nested. So they go from this first, uh, the main kind of thing of them being on this submarine. They then go into this like folk tale about this woman who goes missing and is thought to have been taken by wolves and is now living among this pack of like feral wolf men but then within that story the woman there has a dream that she's in a jazz club it's very very strange um you really one of these kind of films we really have to let it just like wash over you on account of its extreme almost pathological oddness uh, it's on movie just now it's well worth watching uh, Udo Kier has an amazing bit where he plays a man who's like convinces his blind wife that he has died and then runs away and then keeps coming back to the house to like have big drinking parties and like moving bits of toast around the room and stuff. But that's like a story within a story within a story. It's like if you got, if you asked a very esoteric director who was obsessed with 1920s cinema to remake Inception, but you only told him the very loosest details and you gave him about 100 grand, this is what you would get. Yeah. I mean, he called me satiric. He is satiric. I think he you know, he obviously loves old movies, but he's so funny as well. Like, so camp and, like, the, the, the humour is, like, body and, like, yeah, he's, yeah. he's great. So what year did it come out? Because already on this episode we've decided that we have different definitions of old movies. This is, like, only five years old. This is not that old. Yeah, this is from, like, 2000 and... 2018 maybe, yeah, maybe a bit earlier than that did you talk to Guy Madden when it came out I didn't but um, I think Phil Concanon did yeah yeah, um, yeah he's, he's great quality uh, he's like a, yeah I've, I've talked to him for a few things he's like a, yeah really smart guy um, I love his all his films he's like a, yeah, they're all really interesting but yeah, they're all obsessed with like yeah like you say 20s films or like 40s melodramas and he, he loves to take all those kind of elements of old Hollywood and old you know European filmmaking and sort of make it his own uh, weird thing um, so yeah, yeah, it's and there it's absolute non-stop chaos from the opening. Like the title sequence has about fifteen different font changes in the space of like a minute and a half. It's wild stuff. If it sounds like you've seen films like Leprechaun and Ghostbusters Afterlife, I guarantee you you haven't seen anything like The Forbidden Room. So check it out. Okay. So after more than 30 years of service, Maverick Pete Mitchell, played by Tom Cruise, is back where he belongs, in the air. He's one of the US Navy's best test pilots, but now he's working with a detachment of new graduates for a special assignment. He has to confront the ghosts of his past 
and his deepest fears. It's Top Gun Maverick. Jamie, you went and saw Top Gun Maverick earlier this week. Before you start, I have two questions for you. How long until the first drop of Danger Zone? I reckon about three seconds. Okay. Yeah. Does anybody talk about having the need the need for speed? And if so, how many times does it come up? They actually don't. That's one thing they don't bring back. <laughs> yeah. One for two. Yeah. You can't win them all, I suppose. Uh, Top Gun Maverick, what was it like? Well, despite my better judgment, this film worked, worked an absolute treat on me. Um, I'm not even a big fan of the original film, to be honest. Um, which is kind of like dramatically inert. It's such a weird film because it's basically all set around the training sequences. So there's actually very little peril in the film. Apart, you know, I think in the last 10 minutes they, they go after the Russians, but most of it's just uh, involved in the training. So it's, it's kind of like boring, really. But yeah, as soon as this film opened with that familiar tune, the ba 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 like I told, like, something happened in my brain. Like it just triggered something. Like goosebumps stood up. I don't know. It's like cinema. I did just happen. goosebumps. You see, Goose, goosebumps exactly. The, the goosebumps. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, exactly. Um, and yeah, when Angels don't happen, I was I was basically pump, pumping there like by by the first five minutes so like it's just like one meal over straight away but like uh yeah john uh, uh, kaczynski who's the director he's kind of form got form in this kind of idea of reimagining old 80s films which you can remember as being better than they are because he did the same with tron he made tron Re- legacy which i don't know if you've seen tron but tron is terrible and tron legacy is not brilliant but it's, he did improve it a lot and it, it obviously has that banging soundtrack by uh, daft punk so he he's quite good at this to take these kind of visually interesting but actually quite dull 80s movies and sort of uh, injecting them with, with a bit more kind of like style. Um, so the film hits all the beats you remember from that 1986 film. So it's, it's almost shot as almost identical scene for scene. Um, you know, Maverick pisses off one of his superiors by flying too close to him in the first scene. Um, there's a the man wearing a Hawaiian shirt with a moustache who sings Great Balls of Fire, who's Goose, and this is now Goose's son, who annoyingly is not called Gosling. <laughs> uh, he's, called, uh, he's called Rooster. I don't know why. That's he's played by Miles Teller. Uh, instead of the homoerotic volleyball scene, we have a homoerotic football scene, which is just as just as good. Uh, and a big part of the pleasure is just recognizing those references. So I kind of wonder if you are not familiar with that film, the, the you know the original, how much pleasure you will get out of it. It's good, you know, but I think there is tons of other stuff. You know, so why it's different from Ghostbusters Afterlife and why it's not just fan service is that I think they actually add in a lot more things that. The, the original film didn't have so first of all it's absolutely beautiful the film starts with Maverick's sort of test pilot in this new plane that can fly at Mach 10 uh, and it's just a beautiful sequence that kind of reminded me of like 2001 you know and maybe this is Cruz having a little nod to Kubrick because he obviously worked with him and on eyes wide shut but it's, just, it's something I just never expected to see in a Top Gun movie just this kind of surreal uh, sequence of Tom Cruise with the lights flying past and stuff but yeah it was amazing and then the flight scenes, the kind of the, the dog fights are incredible. I think much improved on the original, which were a bit co- incoherent in the Tony Scott film. But here, there's just something thrilling about seeing the fact that it's real people in real airplanes against real blue skies instead of against green screen. You know, it's like, and obviously, we you know Tom Cruise has this kind of death wish. You know, he's like a maniac. He loves to do these kind of real stunts, but he's convinced all these young actors to like go to flight school. You know, Miles Teller and that went to flight school. They learned how to fly planes. And I'm not sure if they're actually flying the planes, but they're definitely in the planes. They're feeling the G-force. They, you know, you can tell they're there. And that kind of makes all the difference uh, with these action scenes. 
Yeah, I think the biggest improvement though is Cruz is a better actor. Like he, like in the first film, he's basically just a pair of aviators on legs. You know, he, he's got a cheesy smile. He's a cocky guy, but that's it. He's got nothing behind the eyes. Um, but here, he's a bit more vulnerable. There's a beautiful scene with him and Iceman reconnecting, um, which is really moving. You know, um, but interestingly though, the one thing I thought the film might do that it doesn't is it never lets Cruz show his age. Quite the contrary, the film sort of goes to great lengths to show Maverick is still miles better than everyone. You know, like uh, these youngers are, youngsters are meant to be the best of the best. You know, that's why they're in the Top Gun program. But he is just so much better than all the rest of them, and never kind of reckons with that. You know, compared to Creed, which is another kind of these legacy sequels. You know, in that film, Sylvester Stallone kind of stands aside and lets Michael B. Jordan be the star. You know, and or or, or Tron Legacy. You know, like uh, Jeff Bridges is in it, but he's not like the main focus. But here. Cruise is centre stage and no one is going to move aside, you know. Um, but fair enough, you know, he's still got the chops. He, like, like uh, yeah, we're going to talk about him later as a movie star, but he's, he's still got it. Um, so the film is completely ridiculous, but it falls apart when you consider it in the real world, you know, because it's like, it's completely naive in terms of politics. It's actually a bit more like something like Star Wars. And even the mission, the mission is about like, uh, they have to take out this um, enemy country's uranium plant. And the only way they can do it is to get this like pinpoint accuracy hit. You know, it's like it's basically like the Death Star. It's got what this this base has got one chink in its armor, and only Maverick is the person who can do it. And it, yeah, that's what it feels like. The, the last sequence feels like Star Wars. It feels like there's no going to be no kind of real world consequences of bombing an enemy's base. You know, what are the geopolitical ramifications of it? We don't know. They don't even get named. We don't even know who the country is that they're bombing. The pilots who are flying against Maverick are all kind of in black. We don't see their faces. So yeah, it's it's kind of like a fantasy movie, you know. It's like it's I don't know. Is it right wing? I'm not too sure. It's it's, it's definitely saying the military is great, but it's not like and even in the real world, it might as well be in space. So in that sense, I'm kind of feel a bit ambiguous about it, but I can't deny it was super entertaining, you know. So I don't know. I'm, I'm recommending it, but. You know, if you expect to see a war film, you're not going to see that. You're seeing basically a space movie. Yeah. Is it one of these, because you spoke a bit about how it feels very directly connected, has like the lineage of the first Top Gun. Do people need to have been into the original to like or enjoy or even kind of understand what the hell's going on? Just to expand on that, I've never seen the original. So would it even be worth watching or would I have to watch the first one? It's so hard to say because I think there are, like definitely even the the first hour, I think, a lot of it is nostalgia. You know, like I say, there's a scene where Miles Teller plays Great Balls of Fire and we're meant to think back to Goose playing uh, Great Balls of Fire in in the same bar. Um, you know, it's like th- th- there is a lot of that, but I think there is enough in here that's new um, to recommend it. You know, like the scenes are the scenes are still great, and I think even if you haven't seen it, you're still going to get a thrill out of the action. Like the the flights feel like real flying. It's you know, it seems like it's like something you don't really see anymore. That kind of real life action where you feel like these people that are really in the planes feeling it. You know, so. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's hard to say. I can't really separate it from my experience growing up watching this film, but you know, I'd be interested to see what you think. Yeah. A large part of like Tom Cruise's legacy as an action man, which we're about to get onto very shortly, is that thing of physical stunts, physical action, and being in the place at the time. And it being like, that guy up there hanging off the edge of that building, or that guy up there having his face torn apart by G-forces. 
Is that, is that Tom Cruise? Dressed as a pilot? That's nice. So yeah, it's good to hear that he's still at it, and we're about to discuss precisely in what way he is at it shortly. But uh, Top Gun Maverick is out. It'll be out now, actually, by the time this episode comes out, um, Wednesday of the week we're recording this. And it'll be in cinemas absolutely everywhere. So Tom Cruise is back as Maverick, back in a big action film, and he's kind of sustained his position as one of these like last big action heroes throughout the last maybe like three, almost getting on for four decades. Uh, we want to take a bit of a dive into like exactly how he has done that and like look at some of his other roles and kind of what it is about him that makes him work in these kind of films. I sort of have a theory before we get going that he's kind of like the Western Jackie Chan and he, he's got stu- he's got real ability and desire to throw himself into stunts but he's also got some dramatic chops and he's also got like just battles of charisma and because he isn't like built like a brick shithouse he has a relatability to him and he's just a, a very compact little package that is able to do it all but so we've all gone off and like had a little think about points in his career that have kind of signposted how he's ended up in this position as a kind of the action star he is now. So, Lewis, I think you want to talk about one of the first roles that he had and maybe how that like can start us off. Yeah, so um, one of Tom Cruise's first film roles was in a film called The Outsiders, which was released in 1983. It was directed by Francis Ford Coppola, uh, adapted from a novel by S.E. Hinton. It's um, a, a pretty strange one. So the novel, I think, was from like 1960s time, and it, it, it was kind of about the the growing subcultural boom. It was giving the public the idea of this greaser-prep rivalry um, that was very novel at the time. So the film, having come out 20 years later, is part of that whole nostalgia loop that you were talking about in the other episode, uh, about looking back on the 50s and 60s, but it has this, like, great theme of of ego and masculinity they have this rivalry that's kind of pointless and just only gets them into more and more trouble but it's a tit for tat turf war with the preps tom cruise uh is not one of the central characters but it's kind of an ensemble film like they're all given a good amount of time uh he plays i think his name is steve his character and it's almost prophetic of his future career in that it being a film about these sort of like hard-headed greasers, it's all about that masculinity. It's about being gruff and tough and sort of growling and snarling and chewing up the scenery, which is just stuff that you'll become well known for later on. Though it is to be said that this is with a Coppola. It is one of the dramatic roles that he did earlier on that he doesn't seem to be doing anymore. He does have this like, I think it's fake teeth to have like a sort of busted up look this these big buck teeth or something like that so in that regard he's a little bit unrecognizable uh, and he does bring a lot of that ego into the role which you know you see in his action hero films where he does like being the center of attention and he does like sort of stealing the show but also those more silly goofy comedic films that he does he's made appearances in tropic thunder and uh and Rock of Ages, where he's certainly not the main character, but he does have these little segments where he likes to say, yes, I am Tom Cruise, and yes, I am doing a silly thing. Everybody look at me. Um, so all in all, like a 
pretty interesting start. It was only a couple of years before Top Gun, where I think that he sort of found that he liked being the star a little bit more. And you could see his career start to build from that. But it is definitely interesting. It also has Rob Lowe and Patrick Swayze, and it was just a film that kind of started the careers of a lot of the people who would become like Hollywood's prettiest boys. What's funny is like that uh, that is his real teeth. This is the thing. This is, that, that, this is the funny thing about Tom Cruise. He had really goofy teeth, and he kind of got them fixed. Because in that film, he has the kind of like he's not the the, the main character. Like you say, there's yeah. all these pretty boys who are like the, like you know Matt Dillon. Uh, you know, Patrick Swayze, like these, mm-hmm. these were the pretty boys at the time, and just Cruz reinvented himself. He was like this kind of goofy kid who got his teeth straightened, and then he made like, um, you know, he made a string of like, well, he made Top Gun just a few years later. Really, is like he just yeah. became the biggest star. And if you think he's outlasted all of those guys, like, well, so obviously people like Swayze have passed away, but other other have like aged. You know, mm-hmm. they've become like character actors. You know, something like Matt Dillon is like now making films with Lars von Trier and things like that. Um, or Rob Lowe is now sort of moved into TV and that's kind of his, he's not a movie star anymore, whereas Cruz is like very much a movie star. I can't even imagine Cruz being in a sitcom, you know, he just wouldn't work. He couldn't, he can't, you know, he can't like be a character on Parts of Rec. He couldn't disappear the way that somebody like Rob Lowe can. I, I suppose it does make sense that they were his original teeth because people do point out now the very sort of strange thing that became an internet meme a couple of years ago was that Tom Cruise has a tooth in the centre of his face yeah, so yeah. unlike most people whose two front teeth, the line of their two front teeth is the center of their face, Tom Cruise still has some like visible. Which is funny because he's known for his like million dollar smile. That's yeah, what, you yeah. Know, that's what he is so him. traditionally handsome. I really thought that he was in some kind of wacky costume for this. Yep, that was him. So we've got the, starting out among the hot boys, but soon he ascends to be one of the hottest boys. Um, and I think Jimmy, you were talking before we came on about how people. Over the over his career, you can't be the hottest boy forever, and he's kind of had these like ebbs and flows, and people quite often have prophesized, well, have kind of said that'll be the end of Tom Cruise. Then, yeah, it seems like it happens every time he has a bad movie. The people say that he's done, you know, like he's over. So, like, just thinking back to when he made that kind of awful action caper, uh, night night and day. You know, like with the uh, Cameron Diaz, it bombed at the box office. Everyone thought he was finished. Then he made the Mummy. Like, you remember that kind of like it was going to be this new uh, kick that's kickstart this dark universe <laughs> franchise and they, they did that ridiculous photo shoot with uh, him and uh, who is it Harvey Bardem and you know, Penelope Cruz and all those people and that that sank but he just keeps bouncing back and of course there's all his private life you know we, I guess we've got to talk about that he's had loads of weird behavior especially in the mid noughties he went through this kind of um, stage where he was doing. He was jumping on Oprah's couch and acting really bizarrely. He was having rants against his ex, Bruce Shields, and something's happened. I don't. He's sort of overcome that rough period. Um, I think part of it is Mission Impossible series has just been a massive success. You know, they get better and better um, with each film. He's, he's and, and he's getting better and better as an actor. Um, I think for me, one of the best films he's made of the last sort of ten years is Edge of Tomorrow. You know, it's a properly brilliant sci-fi, um, but Cruise is great at playing a really you know he's playing this kind of craven guy this kind of coward who's genuinely terrified throughout the whole movie um and it seems just a contrast to the, the tom cruise we know he, you know he's he's, he's he has quite a lot of range for this actor who we think is just this star persona he does play a lot of different types of characters um so yeah he seems to be quite content now to be making these kind of massive movies um i also love how he's become like 
he's went from this kind of psychotic, ranting person in the mid-noughties to this quite, quite quaint character now. You know, I love, like, you had this recent story how he went to Birmingham and had a curry. Yeah, and, like, he loved the curry so much he had another curry. You know, this is not... And like, and I think he's like involved in the Queen's Jubilee. He's like almost co-presenting it. You know, he's became this kind of like lovable guy. I don't know what it is. Like he's like whoever's doing his press is now really fixed out, or maybe he's changed. I don't know what it is, but like he seems to be in a much better place. He doesn't have all these trophy wives. You know, like these much younger women who had a total reek of Troy McClure out of like Spring, uh, like uh, The Simpsons about it. You know, he's he's just sort of going around hanging off planes, having a great old time. You know. Yeah, so so he seems to have had a kind of real kind of conversion somewhere. Yeah, and like I think Mission Impossible is kind of for me feels like a point where he like really leans into the action stuff. It's interesting with the Mission Impossible films, he produces them all as well, and that's partly why they have, as far as I can tell, all these big stunts in them, because he is involved in them being kind of showcases for big set pieces and also he's really willing as the person who is both going to be in the film and deciding what's going to be in the film to really push the envelope in terms of what is considered to be the normal thing to do as an action movie star. Uh, in the first, So I rewatched the first Mission Impossible, 1996, Brian De Palma, and the thing that comes across immediately is how intense and physical he is even when he's not doing action stuff, even when he's just sitting down across the table and talking to someone. He's able to be really, really yeah kind of like intense and serious and you can feel the energy just kind of like bubbling up inside him but then he's able to flip that into being like a charming cool guy just on like flick of a switch he can go between the two of them the thing about mission impossible though is that as much as the plot is incredibly convoluted and it's part of the series that they kind of went away from a bit as they became more actiony the stunts and the set pieces in the first Mission Impossible, are absolutely hog wild. The bit where they blow up the giant lobster tank in the seafood restaurant after he's been double crossed. Apparently, there was concerns on the set that they couldn't blow up that big of a fish tank because someone might actually drown on set. And it was like, no, we're doing it. Let's roll. I've made this prop of the exploding gum and we're going to use it. The scene where they lower him into the CIA vault. I was up punching the air. Talk about Top Gun. I was out of my seat in the house watching this scene when the bit when Jean Reno's knife. I mean, like so, yeah, so incredibly like tense. And because the because the actors are right there, they can hold on those shots for so much longer. That's the that's the advantage of your actors being willing to put themselves in ridiculous situations. Is it gives you so much more space as like director of photography or as a like a director of the whole film to like really say we're going to stay on Tom so that you get a sense that this is one this could conceivably be one thing it's when you cut away and cut back and it's very obviously a different person being punched in the face by the giant dragon or something that's when you're like well I've been taken right out of this where if you're like I can feel like Jean Reno is going to drop Tom Cruise (laughs) right on that shiny table Um, and the train chase at the end of Mission Impossible apparently Tom Cruise wanted the wind to be so strong that it would make his face go all floppy and windy. So they found the only wind machine of its kind in the whole of Europe and took it to set so they could get 140 mile an hour winds. And they were actually like buffeting him across this train carriage. But the really interesting thing from our point of view is they filmed uh, the exteriors of the train chase 
on the Glasgow Southwest Rail Line uh, between New Cumnock, Dumfries, and Annan, which uh, Jamie revealed the other day. Yeah, this is the train line I get home. It's like I, <laughs> I go to Ayrshire, which is one stop before New Cumnock. Uh, yeah. Is there still a one hundred and forty mile an hour wind machine on it? Well, I think the reason they do it is because like the only, I think maybe the only diesel train in Scotland or in maybe in the UK. So like, there's no lines, so you can have like helicopters flying around and stuff like that. So that's why they do it. But yeah, it's kind of windy down in Ayrshire. I can see. I can, that, that's not like that's not unusual. I'm sure my face has looked a bit like that once in a while. <laughs> I walk in the dogs. <laughs> and the, just before we go off Mission Impossible and round up on Tom Cruise, I just want to give a shout out to Jean Renault, who has a truly terrible, very bad, not good day in Mission Impossible. <laughs> he has to kill a rat. He nearly drops the leader of the mission. He loses his good knife, and then at the end of it all, after driving everyone home in the fire engine, Tom Cruise is taking the piss out of him by doing sleight of hand magic. And like taking a floppy disk out of his coat pocket and swapping it with another floppy disk and then just send him off in a huff. And then he dies in a helicopter crash. Spoiler. Shocking behaviour. But anyway, Jean Renault being done dirty aside, Tom Cruise, I think the thing about him is he's so committed and it really comes across in those later Mission Impossible films where the stunts just get bigger and bigger and more dramatic. And because you know he's there, you feel like this is a guy who would really do almost anything to make the film that he wants to make at that time. He, as a producer and a performer, has a great understanding of just what gets people on the edge of their seat. He knows how to rile people up and it's like this very specific craft, this skill that not everyone thinks of as a skill in Hollywood, but Tom Cruise does and has been doing it for a very long time and does it very well. Yeah, yeah. I, I do wonder how long he can keep it up though, because you know he must have a painting in the attic somewhere because he is about to turn 60 and he still looks amazing and there's no point in Top Gun or any of the Mission Impossible films where you think, oh, he looks over the hill, you know, but the time must catch up on him at some point, you know, surely... He won't be hanging off a plane at 70, or maybe maybe he will, I don't know. Well, I mean, he broke his ankle in that one stunt on Mission Impossible he insisted getting used in the trailer. Yeah. So I'm sure he has some kind of clause or something like that where if he dies during a stunt, that's absolutely going to make it into the film. He insists yeah. on it. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. But like, yeah, I, I kind of wonder if he's going to do it, but I kind of, kind of hope he doesn't continue doing it because I would love to see him go back to his character actor days you know because he was yeah i think he's a good actor you know if you think of like jen mcguire that's a great film you know or, or think of darker movies or darker performances like magnolia or born on the fourth of july you know he, he, he can act and I, I would like to see him instead of just pushing his body or pushing like the stunt coordinators to breaking point i'd love to see him like push his acting a bit more and sort of because i think he can do you know he can do ethan hunt in his sleep you know it's like he it seems to me his big concern is that the, the stunts and that's what the main focus is that's the big draw that's what people are going for but even in Top Gun he shows that he can act and uh, you know and that is a big part of why it's so much better than the original because he he's got the chops you know he's, he started off as this kind of callow pretty boy in the 80s but I think he's got a lot better over the years so yeah I would love to see him do more of that I'd love to see him go back to his original teeth I just I'm so impressed that he has so consistently and thoroughly stayed inside the danger zone. <laughs> well, no, he's just been on the highway to the danger zone. <laughs> that's, that's a long, long ass highway. <laughs> it's film festival season, and they don't get much fancier, sunnier, or more prestigious than the Cannes Film Festival. Ayanna Murray, the fantastic writer and reviewer, has been down at Cannes 
covering the festival for the skinny. We asked her to send in a little digest of some of the films she's seen, some of the things that she's enjoyed, and uh, that's what's coming up just now. Ayanna is a freelance writer whose work you can catch in places like GQ and W Magazine and on Vulture. You can also follow her on Twitter at Ayanna Murray, but here she is telling us all about this year's Cannes Film Festival. Hi, um, this is Ayanna Murray speaking um, from the Cannes Film Festival. Um, apologies in advance first if you can hear cars passing. I'm right next to a window. Um, but um, yeah, I'm here at Cannes. And um, I'm definitely feeling that fatigue now that the festival is almost over. Um, but it's just been a really interesting festival because I've seen a lot of films and I've seen a lot of films that I liked. Um, but there hasn't really been anything that's like, um, you know, generated that buzz quite like past Palme d'Or winners like Parasite and um, Titan. Um, but there are still a couple more films to go. Some ones I'm really looking forward to are uh, Claire Denis' Stars at Noon and uh kelly reichardt's showing up there's also my most anticipated film the festival broker um directed by hirakaza koreeda who last won the palm door with shoplifters a couple of years ago and this is this is his first film made in korea and you know he makes these really empathetic heartwarming films that just really get to you and i just know i'm going to love this one so that's what i'm really excited to see um but I'm here to talk about the films that I have seen and I have really liked. Um, my favourite film of the festival by far is Decision to Leave, um, the new film from Park Chan-wook. Um, his first film since The Handmaiden in 2016, I believe it was. Um, but this is a really different film for him. I, You know, he makes these thrillers that have loads of twists and turns and have this propulsive energy to them. And I think, you know, Decision to Leave has that partly but it's also a lot more slower and meditative, um, not in a bad way in the slightest. Um, it's a police procedural, but it definitely doesn't feel like one. There's a lot more depth to it than the average detective movie. Um, but it's also a romance um, between this inspector and the woman he suspects of murdering her husband. Um, so it's really just fascinating to see how these two people navigate the boundaries that you know can't be crossed. And there's this just feeling of longing that permeates the entire film that is just really easy to get swept up by. Um, so that was by far my favourite of the festival. Another one I really liked was um, Triangle of Sadness, um, the new film from Ruben Usland. Um, it's this really funny, biting satire aimed at the privileged and wealthy, quite blunt, but very, very funny. There's this one sequence in the middle of the film I won't spoil it, but um, it just had the entire cinema, you know, laughing so hard, whooping, tearing, clapping. It was the like most lively screening I've been in since Parasite, probably. And it was just such a fun experience. Um, a couple of other films I really liked outside of the competition. Um, one is Funny Pages. It's the first film from Owen Klein who you may remember as the little kid from Squid and a Whale. Um, it's his first film and um, it's produced by the Safdie brothers, which on reflection is not that surprising because it does feel like a coming of age movie that the Safdie brothers would make. It has this really interesting prickly thorny texture to it that I thought was really unique for a coming of age movie. Um, 
it's about a car- an aspiring cartoonist. He drops out of school to pursue his passion. Um, but it's also this really wild, gross-out comedy, um, which, you know, maybe not everyone's open to that, but I thought it was quite funny. Um, uh, there's Return to Soul, which was in the Uncertain Regard section. Um, it's about this Korean adoptee who returns to Seoul to find her birth parents. And I thought it was a really interesting, you know, new perspective on, you know, immigrant stories. Just because those kinds of films have like this yearning to them of kind of wanting to belong. And here's this person who's just really angry at the circumstances that she's been given. And I thought that was just a really refreshing perspective on it. And I'll run through my last two really quickly. Sick of Myself, a really funny film um, from Norway, the same producers as um, Worst Person in the World. It's about this um, extreme narcissist who just won't stop lying. And you know, you know exactly where this film's going to go, and yet the process of watching it is just so fun. And another one is Corsage, which had this period drama starring Vicky Creeps, and I thought her performance was just incredible in it. Um, and yeah, those were the films that I really liked at this festival. Um, hopefully there are a couple more that I enjoy. Um, but yeah, thanks for listening. Next up, it's Psycho. Uh, you may have heard of it. Um, Alfred Hitchcock, 1960. So I think that this restoration was, as far as I can tell, supposed to come out for the 60th anniversary, but when the cinema shut, it didn't. And that's why it's the 62nd anniversary of Psycho and there is a 4K re-release doing the rounds in cinemas from the end of this week. But a plot catch-up for anyone who needs it. Uh, Marion Crane, who's played by Janet Lee, works in a real estate office in Phoenix and is kind of struggling in life and she's having an affair with this guy called Sam. She skips town with $40,000, which in today's money would be like just under 400 grand and heads off to LA to be with Sam, but ends up making a stop at the Bates Motel, run by Norman Bates and his mother. Uh, Norman Bates, played by Anthony Perkins, who, by the way, absolute dead ringer for Andrew Garfield. Like, proper time travel stuff. But we'll maybe get onto that in a bit. So, obviously, Psycho, just to set the table, this is a film with a completely ubiquitous twist And if any film proves that there is a statute of limitations on spoilers, it's this film. Uh, But on a rewatch, Jamie, I think that knowledge of what's coming doesn't stop this film from being really bloody creepy. I agree. Um, Can I just start by being a bit of a surplus, though? Go on. Go on. I can just ask, like, I realise it's the 60th anniversary or the 62nd anniversary. <laughs> the big 62. But, but why are they re- releasing Psycho again? I'm sure I've seen this on its 50th anniversary, you know, like, or, or, or I've seen it on the big screen a few times. It's like a film that's very easy to see. And I just feel like Hitchcock made, like, 40 or 50 films. Many of them are masterpieces. Why is it the same one gets released again and again? You know, instead of and I know it's wise because this is the one people will come out and see. People won't go and see Torn Curtain or Topaz or you know all like the kind of more more kind of like you know little scene ones. Um, you know, so that that does annoy me. Like I think uh, in the UK we can be a bit monotonous in, in our kind of distribution. Sort of, but yeah, in saying that, I can see why because you know Psycho Bangs. It's it's just bangs really hard. It's so good. Um, you know, it was a total game changer. 
and the way it pulls the rug out from under an audience. You know, it created the serial killer genre, basically. Um, it showed that horror could be made outside the studio system and made for a hell of, you know, made for not much money, but make a lot of money at the box office. Uh, and also has, you know, like you said, the most famous twist in film history, probably. Um, but yeah, like, but it's got a lot, a lot to it. Like, I think uh, it's been a while since I rewatched it, but like, what always appealed to me about it is its kind of dark sense of humour. You get the sense that Hitchcock was having the time of his life making this. You know, you, you can tell he's behind the camera, thinking, "Oh my God, the audiences are going to love this when we we killed the main star." In the first forty minutes, you know, like that's the you know, and like uh, and the whole kind of mother thing, like I can see, you know, audience at the time must have been terrified, but like it's also very funny, like that that idea of uh, Anthony Perkins having conversations with his dead mother is is kind of inherently hilarious, you know, and I think the, it can work. It works both as a creepy movie and and a kind of very funny one. Um, funnily enough, like I still think the first half is the superior one, you know, like. Uh, it's it's um, it, w- what's so good about it is it, it's it's focused on Janet Lee as Marion and it's it's following this woman who is at the end of the, her tether she like she decides to like throw it all in change her life commit this crime and we just follow her very you know watching you know when you watch it it's quite surprising just how much of it just plays off her face watching her go through the kind of excitement of changing her life the kind of guilt of it. The terror of getting caught every time she meets someone in the street you know when she meets the cop or she meets the salesman you know she's the worst sort of criminal in the world because it's just written all over her face that she's done something wrong and i think that's why that makes the film so moving because so many times in slasher movies you know characters are disposable you know like, like like you know the way it works is nowadays people won't wait 40 minutes for the first kill you know, if you're watching the new Halloween movie or the new Scream, somebody has to die in the first five minutes, you know? Or a character has to live forever and, and there's no peril because they're going to be, you know, that they have to go to the next sequel. But here, why why it's so powerful still is, like, we really care for Marion. You know, we, we follow her. We're in her point of view so many times. So many times in the movie we're seeing the world from her point of view. Um, and that's why we feel so deeply for her. Um so that when she when she comes to this realization, speaking to Norman that she's going to give the money back, you know this kind of this great scene, probably the best scene in the movie, I think, is her and Norman in his creepy office, and they're both talking to each other, but at cross purposes. You know, we know what's going to happen, and there's a bit of tension there, but it's also really, really sad because we know that she's decided to go back and sort of give the money back, and then that's that's what makes what happens next uh, so tragic. So yeah, uh, an amazing movie. Great to rewatch, like you say, Peter. Spoiler be damned. I I knew before I when the first time I watched this, I knew exactly what happened. I knew exactly who Norman Bates was. I knew exactly what was going to happen when she stepped in that shower. But it's you know, it still works, and that's what good cinema is. It's because every angle that Hitchcock chooses is the right one. It's the creepiest one. It's the one that sort of gets you in your edge of your seat. And uh, yeah, it's just great filmmaking and great filmmaking. Is, you know, succeeds plot because the plot doesn't really matter. It's just you're 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 invested in the film so much. Absolutely, and I think the thing about it on a rewatch is it really takes its time to let it unspools actually fairly slowly, and it does have this kind of looming sense that something's going to happen. And obviously, it almost kind of plays better knowing that there is something about to happen because then you see these kind of like tall, weird guys. Who are framed in a very strange there's that scene where she drives away from the 
what do you call it, like the car dealership, and there's three tall, upright men just standing in a row. And in your mind, you think, maybe one of them's the wrong'un. But you can't, like, it just keeps you on the edge uh, on the edge of your seat and keeps you guessing about, like, what is actually about to happen. Um, I think that that scene between Janet Lee and Anthony Perkins, yeah, is the strongest part because it's just a back and forth, back and forth that's very kind of undulating and you can see the two of them kind of working through different things and only occasionally kind of bumping into what the other one is actually talking about. And I think Anthony Perkins' performance is so good because you know that there's something not quite right, but you're not entirely sure what it is. And he plays it in that quite ambiguous way. And as the kind of net starts to come in on him a bit, I think that's partly, I kind of agree with you that the first half is the stronger half. And I think it's partly because his performance is more ambiguous and more kind of feels a bit more layered in those early stages before he's having to be more directly evasive of people um i think it feels quite modern for being a film that's more than 60 years old you have these kind of like point of view shots when you're moving through rooms you have all those like head-on shots of marion in the car with like voiceover behind them lots of like strange imagery and things like that um and i just absolutely love the psychiatrist at the end right so, I've said this in the office a couple of times to varying levels of amusement, but this is a really well-crafted, really well-put-together, excellently-paced, really creepy film. And then at the end, this psychiatrist boots in the door and <laughs> just, he has the energy of a man who bills by the hour but works by the minute. He comes <laughs> in and he's like, I'm going to solve this case and I've, my car's outside, so I need to get going. <laughs> Um, and it reminds me, very strange reference, but someone out there will get it. There's one of the most famous goals ever scored in the World Cup was by the Brazil team in 1970. And it's one where they get the ball at one end of the pitch and they do this very intricate flowing passing move. All the players are kind of like interchanging positions and they flow from one side of the pitch to the other. And the, I think it's Italy, can't get anywhere near them. And then, and then at the very last minute, there's like it gets passed across the penalty box, and this guy, Carlos Alberto, comes screaming in from the edge of the shot and absolutely thunders the ball so hard that it would have kept going like into next week if there hadn't been a net in the way. And that is the psychiatrist role in Psycho, is to come in at the end of an incredibly intricately planned film and just, like, smash the biggest exclamation point you can find on it. Be like, your sister is dead. You're right, but for the wrong reasons. He's next door. Have you got any unsolved murders? Because this guy's just solved them. And you're like, psychiatrist. <laughs> so, yeah, it's such a good film. Um, and I feel like even though, like you were saying, Jamie, even though everybody knows the twist, if you see this film in a cinema, people will still gasp. And uh, when, you know, when the famous scene happens, um, Lewis, as a younger member of the team, how do you feel about Psycho? I love Psycho. It's a really, really good film. It's, it's pretty much a masterpiece, but I think you're going to be really upset with me because I don't like the final scene with the psychiatrist. I do That's think that, Jamie, you're right in that the first half is strongest because we're just following Marion and... It's very claustrophobic. We know the crime. We know that she's stolen this money. And as she sort of gets guiltier and the voices in her head get louder, 
the outside world becomes more and more hostile to her. Mm. And then she meets Norman Bates, lovely, lovely boy, who's very nice to her, very considerate, very accommodating. And that conversation, that great conversation, kind of heralds this change. She, like, decides she's going to pack it in now because she's spoken with him. She's going to turn back and give the money back. Um, And then, of course, the famous shower scene. After that, it is a totally different film. We are bouncing around lots of different characters, introducing new characters who will die soon after, like Arbogast and, and the sheriff and stuff like that, all of whom just do their own little investigations to various levels of, of success. Um, and this nameless psychiatrist just shows up in the last scene, has more lines than any other of the characters, <laughs> and uh, really does just give what is... In, you know, somewhat acceptable for the 60s, but also one of the most rudimentary understandings of how psychology works ever. Yes. Very unbelievable. But um, it is what ties these two halves together is Anthony Perkins as Norman Bates. In that when we first meet him, he is very polite, quite charming, quite nice. Um, uh, Marion overhears this argument that he has with his mother, and that's what kicks off this whole really intense dialogue that we're sort of identifying as the most transitory scene in the film. But after that point, it's when he's getting investigated, right? And he's being caught in the middle of, like, lies by, like, black and white Columbo here. And I think that it's just that Anthony Perkins injects a lot of little quirks and traits into this character. So he stammers when he's caught up in something. He he develops a stammer over the course of the film. But also in the second half, when we keep coming back to him, he's always munching on things. He's always like snacking on something. I don't know if you noticed that. Mm. Um, I don't know what it's meant to be, nuts or something like that. But it's just this very bizarre choice that kind of disarms him as a character almost he's a little bit more vulnerable when he's just sitting around eating a, eating a bag of nuts by himself but um he's by far the most multi-dimensional character so not just in the catalyst of the twist but also just in terms of how well he was worked by the director by the actor um really just one of the best performances in a horror film i think yeah, and I can't think of a more sympathetic bad guy. You know, like mm-hmm. you care for him. Like that's like the genius of it. You, you know, you, he's a serial killer, but uh, you know, you 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 feel sorry for him. That's um, that's one of the interesting things. I was gonna say, interestingly, it's obviously been remade, not been remade. It's been influenced so many films over the years, like Silence of the Lambs, Texas mm-hmm. Chainsaw Massacre, Dress to Kill. So many films have referenced it. But interestingly, I think it's one of the films that that is hard to remake, and there's two. Um, remakes that stand out. There's the Gus Van Sant one, which is a shot for shot remake. It's Gus Van Sant said, I cannot remake Psycho, I'm going to make it shot for shot. And it becomes this kind of weird reanimated corpse, which is a really interesting experiment of film, really. Like, it's, it's basically, it was also a fuck you to Hollywood because um, after the success of um, uh, Goodwill Hunting, they want him to make a remake. And he says, okay, I'm going to remake Psycho, but I'm going to do it shot for shot. So he just like screwed over Hollywood. But, um, but also, um, uh, if you ever seen the the Douglas Gordon, uh, oh, this twenty four hours, hour yeah, yeah, which takes the film and just stretches it out to twenty four hours, which and it just becomes this kind of really surreal thing. This really is becomes sort of um, like a, it becomes just pleasant. It comes like lovely to watch because you can just immerse yourself in the kind of beautiful cinematography. So yes, I saw like maybe I don't know forty five minutes of that, like um, when it played at Tramway, and it was like 
yeah, it's like a, like amazing. So like I'd love to see like I, I just I was gutted I didn't get in there for the, the shower scene. I would love to see that slowed down um, to like that pace. But uh, yeah, so it's interesting that people have remade it, but they remade it so revel- reverentially. Is that the word? I can't say it right. You know, um, what I mean? yeah, yeah. They like they they they, they, they slavishly remade it. They, they, you know, they made it scene for scene, or they actually made the whole thing. You know, so like, uh, it's because it kind of is a landmark movie. So it's hard to like sort of. It's hard to escape Hitchcock. You know, you can't sort of re- remake it without sort of paying homage to him. You know. Yeah, and really hard to overstate its influence on films, not just in the kind of like horror slasher genre, but just in so many modern films there's just like little bits of psycho kind of laced all throughout like modern western cinema so it's i mean i mean like halloween like halloween who does john Carpenter go for he wants to like uh evoke hitchcock who does he hire to be his lead janet lee's daughter and jamie lee curtis becomes this kind of scream queen like her mother it's like it's like uh yeah it's like echoes throughout cinema yeah um, so there's a new yeah, new 4K re-release, which apparently has 13 seconds of additional footage. Pause for gasp. Uh, and then, so that is out from Friday. Uh, it's on the GFT in Glasgow all the week, beginning 27th of May. And it's on in various places around the UK. A lot of like one-off screenings and like little bits and bobs. I'm sure it'll be doing the rounds for the next couple of weeks, and you can catch it on streaming and stuff as well. But uh, unsurprisingly, three thumbs up from us on uh, Psycho. Turns out quite good. <laughs> and I think that'll just about do us for this week. So uh, thank you, Jamie. Just Pierre. Thanks, Lewis. Thank you very much. Good job. Uh, Anna Heat will be back uh, next time to help it stop being such a bloke fest. Uh, <laughs> we are off to go and hit the showers. Because <laughs> uh, that danger zone is not going to get to itself. Um, if we had to play, uh, would we go volleyball or American football? It's harder to do volleyball with a three, so I think we'd probably have to go American football. I, I think. I mean, that's too. We don't. That's also separate. hard with a three. I think. Yeah. What, what about like shotless rounders? Is that sexy? Is that, <laughs> does that work? How about a, that, game, a game of Uno? <laughs> shirtless Uno <laughs> on the beach. Come and catch us down Portobello Beach for. <laughs> The Cine Skinny's inaugural shirtless Uno tournament. More of that next time. But uh, yeah, thanks, Lewis. Thanks, Jamie. And we'll see you all shortly. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Bye.